lleven la receta, no pueden cuando se hace la, la fermentación Open fermentation, ¿no? toda la bacteria dice, esto no lo van a encontrar allá en el valle pues agarra todo lo de las frutas y todo tiene todo ese tiene un río ahí al lado entonces este es entre dicen que está entre un espadín y un mexicano está a mí que me encanta el mexicano está mero en medio en, en en cómo se desarrolla y cómo crece. Este fue la, eso fue lo que Old Lining quiso hacer. El, hicieron 80% a mexicano y 20% de Tobalá. Ah. Que fue el batch que hicieron ellos. Uh, right. Cool. Oh, okay. Cool. So, oh, you're rolling. Oh. Yeah. We, we use everything. Like we could, he could cut everything. So, so as I said, we are very, uh, we have the privilege to have this mezcal in house. It's agave guarache from Tosba. It's a very, um, Very delicious mezcal, it's hard to get. We only got a six pack. We've been begging the distributor to get a couple more cases, you know, paying a lot of money, but he said, there is no more. We talked to the supplier and the mezcal maker, he said, you know, there is more uh, going to the, state, to the States, uh, but in a couple months. It's an uh, unclassified agave. It takes about six to seven years, just like an espadín. Okay. It does look like an espadín and a Mexicano, so you are, you know, you compare apples to apples, you get confused. <laughs> I don't know how, how they, um, how they distinguish the, the agave, but it's agave del pueblo, which is uh, agave of the village. She belongs to the village. Cool. So, um, you know, cheers. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. My pleasure. So before we started the video, I guess we, you took me over to the bar and we got to taste a few things and I know how passionate you are and how excited you are about agaves. Now we have three bottles. Uh, I guess throughout the process of this interview or this conversation, uh, we get to taste a few things, so calm down the nerves a little bit uh, in case there's any. <laughs> Just like uh, Ulises Torrentera says, you know, the, the day it starts after the, the first sip of mezcal. So, so we just so got started. We just got started. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great quote. Um, Uh, so the, the reason I, I wanted to ask you a few questions because I always think your story it's amazing I know a lot of people that you know looking back of you know at the journey sometimes you know you don't have time to tell that journey but I got snippets of it as the time when we worked together mm -hmm. and I thought it was very amazing and very interesting because everybody goes through their own struggles everybody has their own story And, you know, you have your own movie, I have my movie, and somehow when we connect, when we're working together, our movies intertwine. And then you go on to do your own thing, and I go to do my own thing. Uh, but I think it would be nice to kind of share with everyone a little bit of your story. Um, I wanted to find out, and, you know, for everyone's sake, like, when do you come to the United States? And, you know, what was your first job in that transition? of like your story, like when it all started? Well, everything started back in 1996. Um, I was having difficult problems in Mexico as far as, as being the leader for my family at the age of 14, 15 years old. Um, my father is an alcoholic, or he was an alcoholic. My mom didn't work, so we didn't have any money to, to pay the bills, to get something to eat. I didn't have any money to go to school and, you know, continue education. And I was the oldest one of the three brothers, the three siblings. So it was the time for me to, to take the next, the extra step. And, you know, I had to do something. Be the man of the family. So I became the man of the family, working in a bar in Oaxaca with my uncle. And it was, uh, 
a strip club uh, bar, you know, adults. For you, and, yeah, yeah, that was tough. <laughs> it was very tough. <laughs> uh, so I opened my eyes before I became 18 years old. Um, so working in that environment and seeing a lot of, uh, you know, rich people getting, you know, spending money and, you know, just getting crazy and all these, you know, strip club uh, ambience and environments kind of wake me up and, you know, I was making enough money, but I said, this is not something that I want for my family. And either I continue education or I'm going to be here for the rest of my life, right. you know, working in this bar yeah. or this environment. So thanks God that I, my uncle was, was here in LA already. Okay. So I approached him and I told him, hey, I want to go to the States. Um, I'm only uh, 16 years old, but I know I can cross the border. I just need you to help me to pay for the Coyote. Um, you know, this is the situation with my family. And, I, you know, we're about to lose the house because my dad is in death. He's drinking. And then we, when we're talking about drinking and, you know, and a family member or alcoholic uh, problems, is it means my dad was lost on the streets, like a homeless, for weeks. Okay, so he so went in the deep end. The story of my life is, I, you know, every, every, every time that my dad started drinking, I had to go and look for him on the streets and asking people, hey, have you seen my dad? You know, oh yeah, he, he was drinking with these him, two guys. Yeah, I saw him the other day. So he was used to it. Um, but, um, you know, just seeing my, my, my little brother and my little sister and my mom just suffering and I was the only one. So I took the decision, I came to the States. My uncle who was here for a year. He, um, he helped me to pay the coyote. During that transition of you know, flying from Oaxaca to Tijuana. Uh, I remember my mom that went to, um, she was the only one with my aunt to, uh, to go to the airport. And my dad was, he knew he was coming, I was coming to the state and I was leaving. It was time for me to leave to departure, but he was just hiding behind the, the house, you know. He was just, he wasn't sure and he didn't see like I was leaving, you know. He knew about the problem, but he didn't want to face the problem. So I left Oaxaca back in 1996. I got to Tijuana. Everything had a plan. I got to Tijuana to um, this famous hotel. It's Hotel Leyva. It's one of the most dangerous hotels in Tijuana until then. So the instructions that I had from my uncle was, you know, just get to the hotel, get a room, and then someone's going to go and pick you up and they're going to cross you. Okay. So I was really hungry when I got to the hotel. That was nighttime and I had to go to the street. How old were you? I was 16. Okay, wow. So I went to the street and um, I started seeing all these Tijuana scenes like, you know, tacos, uh, prostitution, drugs, uh, gang members, just right there on the street. So Oaxaca, it's, you know, it's safe, but it's not, it's, it's not like, Tijuana back in the days, so I wasn't used to see all these, you know, things going on on the street. Was Tijuana like a cartel capital? Cause I, it was, uh, okay. still is the okay. cartel capital. So back in the days, Tijuana was considered world, one of the most dangerous city in Mexico. Okay. Um, and that I district, imagine yeah. back then. Um, so I was mm-hmm. walking on the street and everybody was looking at me like, you know, this little guy, it's not from here. You know, he's probably crossing the border. So I just went to get some grilled chicken you know, off, off, off the street, and I just went back to the hotel. So they picked me up. They took me to, um, to the van with another 12, 10 guys, including girls. So we crossed the border, whatever. Um, and then right in the middle of the desert, you know, we, 
we noticed that the driver was either lost or he was being persecuted. So thanks God that at that, that particular time, uh, we got caught and then we didn't have any more water and it was really hot in the desert. So a couple of the girls were passing out, were crying because they were scared. Oh so when they opened the, the van, you know, they saw 12 of us just laying down and they sent us back to TJ. Uh, back to Mexico. Yeah. I don't think it was TJ because I was last after they sent us back. Um, one of the things that helped me was that I was underage, so it wasn't. They weren't pressing any charges, or you were in so trouble. They sent me back home. You were But kid. I was, I was, I was concerned because I said, "Well, fuck, I fell. Like, you know, what's that was next?" My only chance. And then now my aunt, my uncle doesn't know where I am. I do have his number, but his the phone call was not going through. Anyway, so two of the people that were sent back to Mexico. Uh, there were two people from Mexico City and they said, um, you know, don't worry, we have plenty of experience. We have- <laughs> We're gonna do it again. <laughs> so we did it again. We passed the border um, uh, through Arizona. So now uh, I'm in Arizona, right? Uh, okay. That was not the plan. The plan was they have to be, I have to be delivered to LA. So I stayed there with a couple of friends of my uncle in Arizona. Uh, so, so one other, another friend went to pick me up from LA to Arizona. Okay. So when he got there, he said, the only problem is that we have to fly back to LA. I'm not How did you fly with any documents? Well, I don't know what they did in the airport. They bought the two tickets under my friend's name and also the other guy's name. And then when we were checking in, they said, you know, just go. Well, just they probably go. had somebody else's ID. Uh, and they borrow an ID from another friend and they say, like, you are this person, this is your age, memorize that, you know, probably. They just told me, just go, go, go now, go now. And then I just went to the to the station and I crossed the checkpoint and I was It's also there 1996, and, right? Yeah, 1996. There's a lot before, of things that were getting smuggled. You're the correct. least of their worries. Correct. So, <laughs> yeah, when I was a little kid and they, they, they bought me uh, nice tennis shoes, buy clothes. So, I, so you're not attracting attention. Yeah, correct. At one point, I was looking like an American kid, you know, okay. uh, Mexican-American. Um, so I got to the airplane and then when we were on the airplane, I was just, you know, recording everything that I have gone through. And I told my friend, like, what's next once we get to LA? He said, once we get to LA, walk away 25 feet away from me because if you get caught, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm doing you a favor, which is great. Right. So uh, he said, just pretend that you're reading a newspaper and then if you see any of the security guys or any uh, officers, just keep walking, don't look at them. I did, I did see a couple of uh, security guards and. Uh, immigration uh, officers. It was very scary. He said, I'm already in LA. So I was walking to the airport and this tall American guy walked by me and he started staring at me while I was just looking at the newspaper. Kept walking and I got the uh, swinging doors open and my friend said, we're good. We're good. So I got here to LA with my uncle. Uh, we were li- sleeping about eight to nine people. I can eat a drink. This yeah, is very, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, I wasn't expecting this story. <laughs> this is very intense because, you know, things are pretty real. I, I always admire your drive and, you know, you, you, you're always pushing. Finish that one. <laughs> I guess um, at that point, Mezcal wasn't what it was. That's another topic. So nobody knew about mezcal, now that I remember back in those days. Anyway, back to the topic, it's... Um, so you cross, the, you cross the double doors. Yeah, I crossed the border door and, said, and my friend said, you're in LA, we made it, so congratulations. Um, 
and then I started looking at all these, you know, big buildings, you know, um, different people, different cultures, just walking out the airport, it was just, okay, I'm in the States, you know, this is, this is where everything's going to start now. So I got, I got to uh, the apartment where my uncle was living, and it was a single apartment, uh, just a small studio, a small kitchen, right. one bathroom, and then we have, you know, about eight guys sleeping there. Right. New York was the same thing. Everybody, yeah. it's a commodity. So survival. All of those guys were older uh, friends um, that were just here for a couple of years, making money, double jobs. You know, right. Everyone's working. You take you take shifts to sleep. Like exactly. somebody sleeping in the bed, you know. It's like also taxi drivers. They they go. They, some of them do the same thing. Oh. You know, you take somebody rents an apartment. You share in the same bed. This person's working during the day. This other person's working at night. So you know, when you're working, the other person's sleeping. And when you come home, you know, it, it, it's just the only way to 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 save money. The only thing, the only problem is that I was 16. They were already 30s, 40s, and they were already have a family. Just they have their plan set. Okay, I'm gonna make some money. Go back to Mexico, okay. and that's it. I was confused, and I think that's one of the problems that we have here uh, in America as a, as a immigrants that you get confused, and then you get you start too too young. You know, you can you can have depression as well, and all the problems that you know come through it. So I was confused. My uncle recommended me to to go to high school. Uh, I was still in in, in a good age. Uh, I got all the paperwork, um, so I went to high school. I decided to work for Car Junior as a dishwasher. My first job after a couple weeks. I used to go to uh, Home Depot just to see if anybody needed any help. Right. The yeah. first couple of weeks because I didn't have a job, so I said, "No, I need to start making money now." So I used to, to go to the um, to Home Depot and see if anybody needed help. And there is some uh, construction guys that are waiting to be picked up, you know, and pay hourly. But I was too young. Everybody right. was looking at me. This guy is not going to be able to leave a chair. You know? <laughs> so um, I just decided to go to school. And then I was working uh, you know, full time at the same time. So Saturday and Sundays, I used to work eight, 12 hour shifts back in the days. Uh, because I didn't go to school. So I needed to make more hours to send money to Mexico. And school is the only free thing you get. Correct. It doesn't matter if you have docu- documents. Because it happened to me. It doesn't matter if you're illegal. College is a whole different thing. You have to pay cash up front. Exactly. But high school, junior high school, everybody welcomes you, which is the amazing thing about being and, here. And one of the and you get fed in school as well. I used to eat, um, yeah, the the lunches provided by the LAUSD. So we used to get a, a little milk, a little uh, soup or hamburger. That was my lunch because I I didn't have money to um, to have in my my apartment. You know, and right. pay for food and have a nice dinner right or nice lunch so i used to wake up um make money for from car junior uh, after six seven months i learned the basic english uh, through the dsl classes um, the good thing about this that in high school back in the days we did have a good generation of uh, especially people or kids from oaxaca coming to the states with their families and then we have a good generation as um, uh, esl classes um, and then we kind of make a you know good group and you know talking to everybody and helping to learn the, the language here in the states. The only difference is that I didn't have my family here. I didn't have any support, right? right? So I was just by myself. So after six seven months, I I started looking for a second job. Uh, so I started in Baja Fresh back in 1997. What position was it? 
It was just a cashier, a cashier, uh, bus boy. How was your English then? It was it was very bad. Okay. Still, like uh, I didn't know how to say certain things. People was you know had a hard time to understand the basic. Your sixteen is a, it's a, a tough age, like seventeen, because you already know Spanish, right? And, yeah. And it's a little bit harder than being like eleven or ten. And as I said, it's not, it wasn't an excuse, but I was here by myself. So right. I was, absolutely. I was running my rent by myself, you know, my money by myself, and I still have to see for my family in Mexico. You're still so, you're sending money over yeah. to Mexico. Got it. One hundred, two hundred dollars a month. It wasn't a lot, but it That's was what my family needed. Yeah. So I started in Baja Fresh. And the manager, the general manager who hired me, um, he gave me the opportunity to start as a cashier without even having good English. Okay, that's amazing. So we start practicing English. Uh, we start practicing interaction with customers, interacting with other employees, and that's how I stay, you know, and I learn the language. Um, after a year uh, of becoming a cashier in Baja Fresh, I became a shift manager. And then that's where I noticed that my passion was restaurant business. Um, it was restaurant business because my my father used to have a body shop, and he used to put me to work uh, on my free time okay. and summer vacations. And I told my dad, I hate this job. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> so he said, You really hate it. I want you to learn that this is this is what happens when you don't go to school, and this is when what happens when you don't work hard for your dreams. You're gonna be stuck here. And then you go and get an oil change. Eventually, at least they're not gonna rip you off because you know what an oil change takes. You know, you know what, you know how to change a tire. Yes. But I start, you know, I thanks my dad for that because open it, it opened up my mind, my brain, and developing different ideas how to resolve, you know, problems on my own. So um, after becoming a shift manager, working at the age of 18 years old, going to high school. Um, I was invited to be part of the soccer team in high school, but I declined because okay. I have to work. And that was one of the opportunities that I let go because I, 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 used, to, I used to love uh, soccer back in the days, play soccer. But I say either I and work- You're still a kid. Yeah. And you don't get to play sports because you have to- I have to work. Be an adult. Correct. So, you know, and then when I used to get to the apartment, it was the day offs for some of the guys, and they were drinking, they were, you know, just having fun. So this is, you know, I was confused. It was like, fuck, you know, I don't get to, to sleep because these guys are drinking. You know, they are in a different generation. They're going back to Mexico soon. It is hard to make money. So I started looking for, a, for an apartment. It was hard because I didn't have any papers, whatever, no, no credits. Um, I was ripped off by a, by a guy as well because he promised me to to get my driver license and then we me and my friends from high school we went all the way to uh, Palm Springs to the DMV we got the certificate and then he said with that certificate now you can go to Santa Monica and they're gonna have your information so we pay him like back in the days it was a lot of money we pay him a thousand dollars to try to get the driver license because having the driver license back then, it was going to open the doors for us for, for everything opportunities. else. Yeah, that's so, your ID. Yeah, that's your identification that you're okay to be here. So we pay him a thousand. He said, "It's that deal." Now you go to Santa Monica, and they're going to give you the appointment. You pass the, uh, the reading test, the, the the other test, and then you get your license. Okay. So I got, I got to Santa Monica, and I asked him, "What about it? they asked him for Social Security?" And he said, "Just show them what you have on your wallets," which it was a fake. Uh, oh, social okay. security 
um, so that didn't work out. So it didn't work out, <laughs> but I got to Santa Monica. I I was I, I was a kid, and they asked me for the social security. So I showed that to the to the lady, and the next time I I knew I was being arrested at the DMV. Oh, they arrested Santa, you. They arrested me. I didn't know that. Yeah, they arrested me. So they took me to the little room, and then they took all my fingerprints, and they sent me to court uh, for uh, showing fake IDs, fake IDs, and uh, social security cards to uh, uh, to uh, an agency. Anyway, that popped up until I was trying to fix paper later on. Um, so I didn't get my license. This guy, this guy, you know, we never heard from him. He got a thousand dollars for free from me and from my friend. So they rip us off. Uh, first Christmas in, in, the, in the States, I was just drinking uh, a Coca-Cola bottle and a little pan, a little bread from uh, Ralph's. That was my dinner for Christmas. And all the guys, you know, went to work. I was just by myself. I called my mom and said, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing, you know, the That's usual. Great. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing the usual. We have a chicken and barbacoa here. We miss you. And that's when I... That's when I, de I decided to say, you know, I'm quitting, like, you know, I'm going back to Mexico, right. like, fuck. And you also don't want to worry anymore back home. Yeah. Which I still think to this day is the, it's the biggest misconception. Everybody in Colombia or Mexico think that, you know, you live as a king here when you, when you come exactly. here. They expect things to get sent back, you know, because it happens in, my, in, in our culture. And, you know, it's our pride and also we don't want to worry our family. Because the next thing they're going to say is like, just come back. Because exactly. you could always come back. You know? Anytime. Anytime. It's a free flight. Yes. <laughs> so I was eating uh, for dinner, little bread and uh, bottle Coca-Cola. That was my dinner. Not even turkey or ham, nothing. So I didn't have money. I didn't have a, a kitchen in the, in the apartment. So I said, you know, I got to eat this and fuck it. You know, that's how I learned, like, this is the States. This is how you start, this is how you're gonna suffer, this is the life that you're Everybody's gonna Everybody's going through that process. So I went through that process and I continued working for Baja Fresh. The manager who hired me kept supporting me, going to school, working on my schedule. Um, and then two years later, um, when I was probably 19, they, they offered me the assistant manager, I'm 19 years old. Then Amazing. at 20, I got my first location uh, in West LA, which was one of the new ones, and then they invited me to be a general manager at the age of 20. They really believed in you. Yeah, so I went to the interview with the owners face to face. They love it. They know they knew who I was. They gave me this, you know, fifty-five thousand dollars salary back in the days. That's a good uh, salary. <laughs> and they said you can still go to school like you oh, that's want amazing. to, uh, as long as you comply with your job. So at the age of 20, I was general manager and I was running a, a 3 million uh, store, 3 million sales store. A lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility, about 40 employees, uh, going to meetings and all these general managers back in the days that were looking at me like this little guy, what he's doing on the table with all right. these experienced people. This guy that's really hungry, they yeah. don't know that. So, <laughs> um, and that, in those days, Baja Fresh was, the best uh, Mexican casual concept. Um, we totally disappeared La Salsa back in the days, so La Salsa was closing the stores. That was their competition? We were taking over, right. you know, without yeah. knowing that... You were doing so something good. Yeah, but without knowing that someone was gonna replace us eventually. Okay. Because we didn't continue the innovation. And that's what I said in restaurant business, innovation is part of the process 
every Stay single day. Staying alive, you have to evolve. So La Salsa started closing the stores because we were, we were closing the stores. We were opening the stores right across the street from them. We were not afraid of La Salsa anymore. We were the new thing. And then I became very proud to work for Baja Fresh. Um, as a manager, I was representing the brand. Um, I used to do a lot of fundraisers, uh, a lot of sales increase, a lot of catering business. I learned a lot of catering business. I became the leader in catering businesses in LA with that particular Which store. Which is crucial for, for yeah. a restaurant. We were making a lot of catering yeah. sales. That could be 10 to ten to 15% of your revenue. I used to go across the street with the retail shopping centers like Best Buy and uh, Marshalls. And I used to stand up with a little table with the POPs and, you know, the branding of Baja and giving tickets to the people. Hey, we're around the corner coming business because at that time it was everybody about who was having the best sales. About the fresh, stores. In all okay, stores. got it. And I was beating them. Like, boom, boom, boom. You were beating everyone. From yeah. how many other stores? From uh, Back in the days, it was another seven stores. Okay, so you were competing. I was competing with people that were... 40, 45 years old and more experienced, more experience, but not as hungry, probably. but not as hungry. <laughs> uh, I was very hungry, working overtime, working, you know, three hours. I didn't care. I just wanted to be successful. And I think one, that's one of the keys, you know, invest in your career. I was investing in my career without knowing that was going to be um, alive for me until now. So after I increased sales and they saw all these, you know, uh, different skills that I have for marketing, um, they invited me to be, they were opening more stores, they invited me to be the assistant regional manager and I was going to be in charge of 12, 12 locations with the main guy. I was going to be his assistant. So that's when the problem started. Why? Because I didn't have a license. The other managers were kind of jealous because they have, you know, more years working for the company and they didn't get picked. You didn't have a license as a driver's license? Yeah, or? driver license. Okay. So you couldn't get around? I couldn't get around and they needed to have a license because I was going to go store to store driving with a company car policy and they wanted to be insured. So they gave me a week to figure it out. Uh, one of the guys told me, you know, I have relatives in Washington, Washington State. They give you the license without social security to so go over there. You know, so I went there. I went there driving by myself, without a license, without without anybody, just myself. I took my car. Um, it was 16 hours drive, great by myself. And then I got there. Um, the The family was waiting for me. At that time, we didn't have any map quests or we, or any driving applications. Just pulling up the map. Yeah, just pulling <laughs> up the map, and then I was I was scared to be last in Portland because there was a lot of freeways. So I got to the uh, to my destiny, and then the, the family was waiting for me, and they said, "Okay, let's make an appointment." I went the next day. I passed the appointment for the for the rating test, and I only have one week to go back to LA. And they said, "Unfortunately, we don't have any uh, uh, any other uh, appointments for practical tests, so you gotta wait two weeks. So unless you, you do a standby, and oh, you, you can come up. in the next five days." And then if anybody doesn't show up, then you, you're next. So I went the second day, and the second appointment didn't show up. So Amazing. I was just ready with the car, not driving in, in the Washington State at all. I didn't know the laws because it's a little bit different from California. So I said, okay, you passed it. Boom, here's your <laughs> ticket. And then coming back to California, you know, with a license. But you were less stressed. I was less stressed. <laughs> 
And then I got the position, you know, to be assistant regional manager. And then I started opening a couple more stores with them, helping them. I, uh, we opened Century City, we opened Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset and Vine. So we started getting involved. And then we opened um, uh, La Brea in Santa Monica, West Hollywood. 11. And then we opened um, um, Sherman Ox. So that's 12 stores. 12 stores, uh, max, you know, to the max. And you were managing them all? I was managing with another guy. Got it. Now, the other guy, uh, something happened. He decided to go to um, another state. And then my boss said, you know, you're taking the position. And I was only 22. Wow, and this you, is a fast career. Yeah. And then he so said, you're going to manage uh, my 12 locations, top of the market, because Baja Fresh was top of the market back then. It was the best franchise group in the States. No pressure as a 22-year-old. No, no pressure. <laughs> and then... I was, remember the reputation. Baja Fresh was... Yeah, it was the king of the fast casual back yeah. in the 1995s. Uh, that's when it started, 2005. We were right to the top. Uh, we, started hear, we started hearing about Chipotle until 2009, 2008. Coming to, to Southern California, but they were still afraid of coming to the market because we were very strong. Right. No, that makes sense. And then for me, I didn't have to worry about Chipotle opening one store across the street from us because our concept was very strong. Right. Our operations were very strong. So, But in so, addition to that, remember you mentioned before they added two more concepts, new concepts. Yeah. So Just because you didn't have enough to do. We didn't have enough to do and then my, my two bosses. Plate, yeah. My also. two bosses were all about restaurant business too. And then... You know, how, how the restaurant business has changed from 2007 to 2017. These two guys, they have a lot of experience, a lot of uh, connections in the restaurant business, a lot of reputation. And I never understand why they didn't do their own concept, why they had to franchise other concepts. But that was the market back in 2007, right? right? Everybody wanted to franchise the hot spots, right. the hot, uh, you know, concepts. So they start franchising the counter burgers, which was a build your own burger with more than 2,000 different combinations. Which is extremely difficult. Even to get a burger at the, at the right temperature yeah. already has so much factors Exactly. Involved. So we were making, we were doing okay with Baja. We were making about $25 million in sales for the 12 Baja Freshers, up to 30, 30 million. So I, managing, I was managing the whole thing. Oh. The only thing that I wasn't able to manage was the leases or the lease for any store. But I was in the meetings. I was involved with the two buses, learning, experiencing. I was just paying attention. 20s. Okay, boom. Right, learning. This is how you negotiate a lease. This is how you negotiate better offers, etc. So we started getting involved with the counter burger. And they said, you know, you focus on the Bajas. We're going to open the two counter burgers. We'll let you know if we need your help. And I asked them twice, um, I have a vacation plan for the first time to go to Oaxaca because I finally got my green card and I want to go to Oaxaca. Do you need help opening this new restaurant? What so year was this? 2006, 10 okay. years, 10 years, up, 10 years uh, later, uh, I get to visit my family uh, and get my, you know, my, my, my green card. Right, so I'm sure you were really excited. I this was really it, excited, yeah. but I was very excited for the new adventures of the company because I show a lot of 
passion and a lot of love for this company. And you still kept all the other Baja oh, yeah. upload and doing great sales. And again, yeah. you were very competitive and very hungry. So I'm sure you elevated. It got that. to a point where I had to tell the company we need to buy a, a transportation for the catering orders because I came out with a 800 number for caterings that was only for us. Wow. Uh, everybody was calling me on my phone to place catering orders. I used to manage them all and say, okay. I used to work in a team with my managers. I used to say, hey, we have an order for $2,000 tomorrow. This is the this is the order. Uh, make sure everybody gets in time. I'll so get there. The location that's, you're calling the manager that has yeah. the location closest to that. Place. Yeah, I was managing everything because wow. I have the best area, you know? If they call me from Sherman Oaks, I have a location in Sherman Oaks, Beverly Hills. I have all the locations sent to the city. You, you're picking up the calls, doing two people's jobs. You're picking up the calls for the caterings and yeah. you're also managing all the locations. And I was also delivering all the big caterings because I wanted to ensure that the food... Have that face-to-face Yeah, face-to-face well. and then start making all these connections. Yeah. At one point where the customers or the point of contact were like, hey, they used to call me or text me. I need the same order that you have last time. So you were the guy, you, they're talking to the owner, quote exactly. unquote, right? Like you're the guy, it's just familiar. I don't have to explain it again. It's just one phone call away, you're taking care of. Yeah, so we start making about, to be honest, $20,000 a week in catering sales. Uh-huh. I was putting everything in my truck. And I asked my <laughs> boss, hey, it's time to, to get a lease for a new van. <laughs> so we got a van and then still using my truck, caterings all over, gray sales. Then we start getting involved with the counter. So I said, no, we don't need your help. You know, we got a general manager. He's in training. He went to the counter. We're going to open West Hollywood. And then I went to Oaxaca after two weeks coming back. uh, They said, we need you at the counter. It's a mess. The opening didn't go well. Uh, Long ticket times. Um, Because it's burgers. Yeah. It's it's, it's, Uh, servers, full service, beer and wine, different. I didn't go to training, so they they took the decision to let the general manager go. Wow, that's very. And then I took over without training, without knowing about the concept, and that's how I learned the concept. By you know, you see what's wrong and what doesn't work, yeah, and it doesn't make sense. It was just you know a lot of stuff going on, and then I guess the kitchen, the kitchen guys, they seem okay. You know, there is more communication with this guy. Let's and you're also together. bilingual, you speak Spanish. Yeah, and then, you know, they, they, they notice that I understand the kitchen as well. So we started fixing that location. I learned the concept, and the vice president of the counter, he said, you still got to go to training because, you know, we're going to open a couple more. So I went to training for one of the training stores for a couple of weeks. I got the concept. I learned it. We opened the second location in Mariko Mayo, and then my boss said, I want you to be directing the opening now. Right, so to uh, do it right. We, yeah, we made a mistake, <laughs> so this is a big investment, uh, 6,000 square feet, full bar. Wow. So uh, we opened Mariko Mayo um, in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Everybody was, even the president of the company was... Uh, the vice president, the president, investors, everybody was nervous about Mariko Mayo because it's a big launch route. And it's also like right after depression and things are not like, you know, the recession, things haven't picked up properly. Nobody knows what's going on. After the mess in Hollywood and West Hollywood, we don't want to see a mess in Mariko Mayo because it's a reputation. So we did $5,000 launch the first day. Wow. And that's, that's big for a launch. That's, that's huge. That's huge. A launch is usually a thousand, maybe twelve hundred, fifteen hundred, 
and but that's I, that's a steady launch. <laughs> you know, we did a great teamwork. I put the best expo at the window. I put the. Uh, I told the general manager just focus on the front. I manage both. You don't have to deal with anything else. Just focus on the front. Um, I talked to the kitchen manager. This is the plan. We're expecting a big launch. You know, start start um, making patties, cooking patties. Um, so at one point we're gonna get crash. We yeah, have a plan. Have a plan. And then when my expo got, you know, hit at the window, I went to the window, running food. It's was, the orchestra, right? Yeah, you have yeah. this guy there, you know when to swing the... And it was very fun for me. Right. And then when we worked to the peak hours, like one, like there was 30 people waiting in line for this new concept. And so we're almost there, you know, one more hour, and then this is going to be very successful. And it was successful because we planned. Right. And I had the experience as well, and I was involved since the beginning. So we did 5,000, everybody was uh, very, very happy with the opening. Uh, we were making, for a, for a casual full service, back in 2012, we were making $65,000 a week, 70,000. So after that, um, the owners of the franchise, they asked me to be an investor because okay. they really wanted to keep me happy. Right. But we're also opening a third location in downtown. But in 2012, that's when Baja started changing hands, corporate. What does that mean? Uh, so the Baja Fresh Corporate was bought out. Oh. And it was bought out by a guy that didn't have any restaurant experience. Got it. So he said, all I care is about the bottom line. Right, numbers. You numbers. trim the fat so much that then you hit the bone. And then Chipotle was expecting that. And then it was on all the news, it was on all the magazines. So that was the opportunity for Baja to Baja sold to Sweet Factory, a, res, a, a non-restaurant experience, uh, 400 locations, and he's trying to take Baja Fresh to the next level. So then is that when Chipotle came in? Chipotle didn't wait. He saw that the guy didn't have experience. Right. He started changing everything pre-dice, pre-cooked. was nasty. Three months. After three months, we have a members meeting with, with the CEO of Baja Fresh. My bosses were involved, all the franchise groups. Hey, this is a disaster. We're getting the, the rice pre-cooked, pre-packaged, uh, the cheese, everything pre-packaged because he wanted to save labor. And said, no, let's go back to the old way. But the old way. Once, you, once you lose your, your customer's trust and then there's a new kid in the block. But it was only three months. Chipotle had already leases in LA, sign up. Beverly Hills, they're in La Cienega. They're everywhere. They, were, they noticed the mistake. Said, these guys are done. Like, they made a mistake, we're gonna go with everything. Try to get those clients back, it's like trying to get the Titanic out of the water and make it work. <laughs> it's a good analogy. So it was too late for Baja. And then two years later, their first location start closing down. Their first two locations start closing down. So it was right away a big change. Yeah, the only thing that I was keeping us alive was the catering businesses. It was at one point it was fifty percent of our sales. Which is what you built. Yeah, it's what I built. So what happened when they offered you the partnership? The partnership was for well, I invested it. Uh, you know, they were inviting different investors. And I, I was one of them for the new location. And it's also an honor, right? Correct. You're an employee. You get this opportunity. Like this is the American dream. You get to own something that's successful exactly. that everybody knows about, and you're part of it. 
So when I when we were when we were planning the opening of the third location, my boss started introducing me like, "This is my right hand. This guy is my right, right hand. Yeah, he's gonna look after me, and then he's an investor as well. I feel more appreciated. Yeah, um, and he knew that I had the passion to take care of the business. Since the beginning, when I started the position, I always start uh, acting like a like a boss, like a owner of the business." without getting paid as an owner. Right. And I think that's what life you know, is paying me back now. I'm so used to the owner. The stress. The stress. Like as a leader, you take all the blame, but then you give everybody all the credit. Correct. And you always, you know, you're always learning. You always have all the liability. You're always making mistakes. And you always have all this stress, 24-7, phone calls. But it's a lifestyle for a restaurant business. Yeah? And right. you're really into it. You won't see it as a problem. You will see it as an adventure. Yeah. You know, every day is a different day. Exactly. And you just take it one at a time. And that's what I love about <laughs> restaurant business. We can be drinking mezcal here. Later on, I have another meeting for catering. Tomorrow, I might have another meeting for something else. Right. Or there might be fifty people are about to walk through here, and we have to stop this. Correct. Exactly. Because <laughs> you so, have to go and help out the dishwasher, or wash some glassware, or. Or, you know, put some chairs or you just never know. Yeah, correct. It's so unpredictable. So unpredictable or the kitchen might be bathtub and we have to jump into the kitchen. Absolutely. Uh, you uh, know every job in your own place. Yeah. It's like your house. And then, or one of my, uh, one of my guests wants to talk to me, I got to make time. And, Absolutely. You know, um, so, after I see Baja Fresh, you know, being in decline, I said it's time to move on. Um, so I started looking for small restaurants uh, online. Very hard to start your own business, very hard. Um, even though I knew the, the restaurant business, I always told my friends, no, I will never open mine. It's too much liability, too much money. Up front, yeah. Up front, and then maybe um, no profits. And you're yeah. signing a lease for 10 years. Yeah, and like then you, you have family, you have a mortgage, right. whatever. You could go on debt really, really quickly. So I found this location. Um, which I only visited once back in the days and it's my first location that I opened in Palms, Culver City area, El Nopal, the famous El Nopal. What so was it famous for? It was famous for being one of the, the first Tex-Mex um, American, uh, Mexican-American food in the West Side. Okay. So they opened back in the seventies with their famous, uh, their famous pregnant Pre burrito. Pregnant burrito. I remember when I met you. And yeah. <laughs> people will come in and still say like, oh, "Are you guys still have the pregnant burrito?" Yeah. And it's like, "Yes, we do." <laughs> so that was another learning experience. Um, I went to this restaurant before I took over because I used to live around the corner. I only, I only ate once and I never went back. It's a terrible food. Right. I never went back and. Just the destiny. Now it's your restaurant, you know. After five years of visiting the restaurant the first time, um, I was looking into it to buy it. Oh, really? So what you know, year was this? This one was 2012, the ending of 2012. Cheers. Cheers. I'm, I'm all done. I'm, I'm <laughs> so this is the Your story has me like wrapped onto the table. You know, here on the stage, I'm like, man, I had it easy. <laughs> I almost cry, like I was anxious. It's just a lot. But for me, it's, I mean, for me, it was just natural to go to all these struggles. Right, I mean, because you're brave and you know, you just get tougher as you go. So they wanted $60,000 for the restaurant. 
beer and wine, 1970. 60K. 60K. Um, I was getting confused if, hey, should I keep my job and open my restaurant? Should I quit my job? You leave this stability to go into something that's so risky. Well, it's yeah. about to take off for you. 10 years that you put into this business. Correct. Um, no noise in the kitchen. No floor drains because it was a grandfather in. What is called grandfather in is it's been open since before the 90s. So all the new rules by health department, they don't apply unless you, you could take the business, right? You can take But if business. you don't close it, you still could operate it. You, you don't close it for more than 90 days, you can still operate it. And they gotta respect that. Right. But if you close it for more than three months, then you have to reapply for everything. That and means it's making a and it's opening a restaurant from scratch, pretty right? Much. Which could cost you anywhere like north of four hundred thousand dollars and just doing repairs. Yeah, and while then, you're paying rent, and then you still gotta pay rent, right? And that it doesn't it, come out every month. Landlords don't care. Oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and then now we're closed for more mm-hmm. ninety days. No, you sign the lease is your lease. So you have to you have to know what you're doing. You have to do your homework. Uh, I took over. We kept the same uh, the same menu, beer and wine. I didn't have any more money to invest in remodeling and investing in a liquor license. It's harsh for somebody that, that wants to, you know, most people want to change and this is my new menu and shock everyone. But it takes a lot for someone to really like bite their lips and stick with something that A, they don't believe in, but then you have a vision that you yeah. know like, in the future, this place will be better, and it will be better better for the guests. It will be better for 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 me as a human being that I could feel proud of something, right? Yeah, and then I remember the owners of the of the restaurant before we closed the deal. They said, "You will be an idiot if you change the menu, if you change the concept. Just continue what we're doing because the only reason that we want to sell is because we want to move out of state." Okay, it's very but. cocky. <laughs> <laughs> I said, like, yeah. yeah, okay, sure, I respect you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is how you make the famous uh, pregnant burrito. Which, which the pregnant burrito is just an oversized, like super-sized meat burrito. It right? was a salty shredded chicken with uh, chopped onions, avocado. You wrap it, because I learned how to make it. <laughs> you wrap it, you put a lot of um, uh, restaurant depot uh, enchilada sauce. <laughs> oh my God. And then melted uh, cheese. It was... So that was the pregnant because it was fat, it was big, a lot of melted cheese. People like that. For people that have the munchies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, back in 2012, Palms was still in evolution. The area was still in evolution. So we were getting a lot of um, um, old customers from the 90s, from the 80s, used to that pregnant burrito. Okay. So I was a little skeptical. How, and, how long was that place around? Because I don't think you mentioned that before. The, El Nopal. El Nopal was around for, until I changed the name last year, it was probably around for what, the 70s, 30, for 45 years. Wow. That's 45 scary years. to change anything from a business that's been around for that long. Yeah. Because they're doing something right. Correct. So I decided to change the menu. I decided to change it to Oaxacan. Because that's the only food that I know how to make, right? I can take in mind that I could be one of the most successful uh, guys in fast casual if I would decide to do a copy of Baja Fresh. Right. You could have copy and pasted, it, but it just doesn't feel right, right? So nah, this is not what I want to offer. You know, I gotta show our culture, different food. Um, there is plenty of competitors for fast casual, so I want to open a, a full service. 
So I changed it to Oaxacan. No marketing, nothing, beer and wine only. And I keep saying beer and wine because that's another story. Um, we have a lot of rejection from the old customers. We don't know what, what Oaxacan is. We don't know mole. We don't care about mole. We People want the like pregnant change. burrito. Yeah. And like my mistake there is I wasn't grave enough. So my mistake was there not to change the name a lot. I was skeptical. I said, I still need this old generation. The customers. Yeah. yeah. To keep the cash flow. Right. I got to pay rent while I gain new customers. Well, what most people don't know is that, you know, labor, you can't put that on credit. Correct. You have to pay for your labor in cash. So your kitchen, the front of the house, back of the house, kitchen guys, your waiters, you have to pay them in cash. So I, I call it a down payment. Yeah. The down payment, the down right? Payment. And it's every two weeks. Every two and, weeks. And you might have to have like anywhere between 10000 to $20,000 in cash. In this case, uh, uh, now here is 45000 Every two weeks. Every two weeks. Plus workers come and insurance every two weeks. Workers come is one of the most... I would say it's must, one of the most stupid ways to steal money from business. And that's in the industry. And every restaurant owner will tell you the same. They're just stealing our money, to be honest. Workers come. Because you have an accident and then you report it, they're going to increase your premium. Now what it used to be $2,000 a month, uh, $2,000 every two weeks is going to be 2700 because you have an injury. Right. And I'll explain you this later, but it's one of the most stupid ways for restaurant owners to waste our money. Well, you're giving money away. Yeah, for every two for, weeks. Quote unquote, if something happens. Now, if I decide to pay my chef because he deserves it, $25 an hour, what stops me is on top of those $25, I got to pay workers' comp on those $25. The premium, which could range from anywhere between like 6 to 9%. I'd rather pay him $18 because I still got to get workers time. And that's how you stop, you know, giving more incentives or a better salary to your employees because it's like another tax section there. Yeah. And it's so, it, it doesn't make sense for restaurant business because you can open a restaurant today. No experience because your dad has money and then he gives you a million and a half. Here's, make your dream possible. Okay. You know, you have no experience. And then we have experience where we started as a dishwasher, you name it. A lot of friends started from the bottom, like you, you know, from bartender, now you have you your company. You learn every single job. Every single step, every single risk, every, every single position, job. Yeah. Working in the industry for more than 50 years. Now you have this guy with uh, daddy's money opening his restaurant in Venice. And he doesn't know anything. He invested all the money. He hired consultants. He hired a chef. Nice concept. He invested in all the opening furniture. And on the first two months, he has two workers' comps because he doesn't know how to follow procedures. He doesn't know the safety in the kitchen. So he reports, well, you know, fuck it. I have insurance. I'm going to report I'm it. I'm going to report it. What happens there? It keeps hurting the industry because the restaurant business right now is the most dangerous industry yeah. environment. Also, when alcohol is involved, it goes a little bit up. So now the insurances are telling us you're in the restaurant business, no matter what, your premium is going to be high because so many accidents in the industry. Right. Then and we so, don't know you. You're a first customer. Yeah. So why should I be considered the same 
as a guy that doesn't have any restaurant experience. My background doesn't 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 affect it at all. Yeah. Right. So the industry keeps being affected for all these inexperienced people. Keep reporting. Ah, and what happened? So it's a catch train goes back around. What happens? We continue in business, but they might decide to close after two years because their premium is too high. On top of all these mistakes, the restaurant is not working. It's not the right concept. They close, but they already hurt the industry. Because they just they they they, they fall into that category of, of accidents. Rest, restaurant bars accidents. So right now they I know that. So I, the industry is there. It's one of the highest industry, one of the with the highest risks. So coming up the door, when you go to your broker and they said, "Oh, I want to get a workers' comp on a twenty thousand dollars payroll," oh, this is gonna be your premium. Oh, my workers' comp went up this year, even after you know three years of business and no accidents. And it's I try to negotiate just, it down and say, "No, it's going up," but they had nothing to do with me. It's just the industry. It's just the industry. It's just the industry. So I get it. So other people making mistakes in the industry. So I think they should have like a parameter for someone opening or applying for a license for a restaurant. They should check their background, just like they check for other businesses. They, we should have a license for restaurant owners, to be honest. You know, just like you go and get a company for, as a contractor or electrician. You have to get a license. Get a license as a restaurant owner so you can see what the restaurant is about. At least the basics. That's not a bad idea. 10 minutes. Let's go back into, so you bought this restaurant, you took it over, you had the pregnant burrito. It was everything against like the Oaxacan culture. It was Mexican, Americanized Mexican food. You know, you have all this 10 years of experience. You're biting your tongue to make any changes because any change could drastically change as you notice from uh, Baja Fresh when somebody took it over and started making changes. You already have, you know, the experience of like this could go south very quickly and I could be out of business and I'm stuck with a lease. So having that fear, but also having the vision of like, this is where I want to be. And also the fear of, um, you know, having a mortgage, uh, having a family that depends on you, it's it's hard. So I, I kept to my idea, I stayed to my idea, I changed the menu. We got a lot of bar reviews on Yelp for changing the menu. They were calling me idiot, stupid. Uh, this, uh, this guy with no experience changing the menu after 30 years. All these customers, so I said, fuck, I made the mistake of my life. I'm done. Like, they're killing me or Yelp. And I called Yelp and I said, this is my corporation, this is my menu, uh, I'm a new owner, please change it. It's not the same. I said, no, you kept the same name, it's the same profile. So all those reviews are legit. So what do you do next? Well, I just kept working hard, making everybody happy. And then until I started seeing a couple reviews, I really changed my motivation. And then, oh, we're happy that this owner changed the menu. You know, we were tired of, you know, the old pregnant burrito. Finally, we have something in palms that is, you know, real Mexican. And people want to explore the culture. Correct. Like, cultures without having to travel. I, I never had Oaxacan experience before. Now, I, you know. Right, I for $25, you get to have a Oaxacan meal. Or even less. Or yeah. even less. Between two, I'm thinking about, like, two people. And then, rather than going to Oaxaca and travel to actually get that homemade meal. Yeah. And everybody's very open to that. 
Correct. So, and then also the neighborhood to start changing right. with apartments, getting new people. Right, all the buildings that were, yeah, the buildings, remember. Uh, the metro station. So new people arrive to Palms and start just changing, changing, and then from... So did you, right? Slowly changing things changing here the and there. Menu, and then I start getting confident with catering. So I said, my only, my only solution right now is catering, you know, to step to up. To build up the business. So... I went to knock doors, I went to UCLA, which I knew them. They said, oh, we don't know about Oaxaca, let me see, got back to you next morning again. Finally, someone opened the door and said, you know, yeah, let's try it. So they tried it, they loved it. And then you get a second call, third second call. Second call, boom, boom, say, oh, we want to <laughs> put you in the system as a vendor. Nice. This is the paperwork that the I need. Business. Boom, boom. And then word them out, word them out, word them out. And being consistent, professional, getting there on time. So you're building that foundation again from your experience. Yeah, sent to the city offices, um, Santa Monica offices. Boom, it was a boom with catering again. So catering is taken care of. Then you have your beer and wine license, right? Then you won your liquor license in a raffle. I won, <laughs> I won the liquor license in the raffle uh, out of uh, probably 120. I was the first one to win it. I was the, the first chosen. <laughs> Say, so, hey, you know, the brokers are calling me, hey, you were the number one, so you get to get the license. Now, this is the process. You know, boom, was happy. So, finally, I'm gonna bring Mescal to now. It's Mescal. No, you sorry. want to introduce Mescal because nobody at the time, everybody was nervous because it was a smoky spirit, it wasn't approachable to a lot of palates. Exactly, tequila, you know, was took over the market. You know, then you had the Casamigos that was competing with Patron and the margaritas one of the top selling drinks the Julio and, and all of the United right. all of the world to be honest um, and you know and then you wanted to take another another battle on uh, I think when you started uh, with the liquor license you did 70% tequila with the menu correct and 30% mezcal just to not shock people exactly and then with uh, how many months or, or less than a year right? less than a year we switched everything to mezcal like right it was liter. like 70 30 yeah everybody was right what's mezcal what's this you know we start you know learning and also sharing that learning experience to people uh, learning about the brands learning about the labels learning about the different agaves appreciating the mezcal more because i wasn't an expert at the time i started learning with you learning with other people uh, being very uh, professional about it, and I said, "This is what I want to do." Even people said, "Mescal, nobody likes mescal." Like right. that's what we meant because yeah. I think that, that the idea was like you had this vision. It's like if you go there, you go all the way in, or you don't do it at all. Correct. Why bother? Exactly. Right. And, and for the people that don't know what the difference between mescal and tequila is, I don't know if you want me to explain or 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 so. You know, for tequila, there's one agave that they could use. is the Blue Weber agave that takes seven to nine years. For mezcal, there is over 156 that they could use right now. And they're constantly discovering more. There are two different methods of, of, of cooking it. For mezcal, the most noticeable one is uh, uh, they do underground fire pits. And that's what gets it the smoky flavor. Uh, Technically, in history, mezcal was before tequila. Yes, I call it the father of tequila. It's the father of tequila, which a lot of people don't know, right? And not all mezcals are smoky. Correct. Which is another misconception that most people don't know. So I think with, 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 at the Nopal, you made sure you chose 
a good mezcal that was like middle of the road in your cocktails to not shock people's palates. And then eventually as your guests were evolving, you were evolving your program with them. Correct. Uh, that's when I met you and then we, you became with this beautiful uh, bar program and then just people got in love. And it was a perfect uh, combination of great food, cozy, cozy, cozy place. Yeah, small. Great. How many seats? Uh, it's only 40 seats, yeah, including the really patio. Really small. Really small, uh, 1,700 square feet, uh, but it has 280 plus bottles now. Yeah. I remember we had a bottle of Grey Goose just in case because we were nervous. We're like, we're doing the whole menu is agave, tequila, and mezcal, or the cocktails. Most, like 90% of the bar was agave products. And we had this bottle of Grey Goose. I remember two months later, nobody had touched no, the bottle. And we're like, we're doing something right. I think that was my realization of like, you know, we're not as hard-headed as we thought we were or as risky as we thought we were. We, we, you actually created a culture and experience. Correct. And there was something there. And until now, it's you order vodka or you order whiskey there, um, you order a bottle, it doesn't sell. Yeah, All they want is the mezcal there. So years, two years later, you know, obviously business doubles in sales. Uh, two years later, that how 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 many square footage? Fifteen square foot, fifteen hundred square footage. Seventeen hundred square. Seventeen hundred square footage location pays for the seven thousand square footage location, which we're here now. Yes. And remember, you said, Facer, let's do this again. You know, and you know, it's such a massive project. I remember being nervous, but you were so calm. You've done this before. You you done operations. You you you've done everything. Mistakes. You done the right thing. And now we are challenged with a new project. Um, I remember having a conversation with you. Saying, remember we said like go big or go home. Yes. Are we gonna be the biggest, or are we just gonna be another? Another place. Right. Another destination. But you know the food is great. You're introducing people, and you said let's go big. And remember, our goal was always to be the biggest. Mezcaleria, the introducing the Oaxacan culture the right way without cutting any corners, without saving any ingredients. Everything was fresh squeezed. I know you get your cheese from Oaxaca. The cheese, you, the, the moles, you make them here in house. We make them here. Scratch. We make the ingredients, uh, the the tortillas, the peppers, the which, chocolate, which is more expensive, but you're not never gonna compromise in that. No, because. What I want to provide my guests is what I'm going to be comfortable eating. If I don't feel comfortable with a recipe, with an ingredient, I might as well. If I don't eat it, why did you eat it? It's not about, it's about the bottom line, I guess, as a business, but it's also your reputation. Absolutely. And also the compromise that you have your guests. Yeah. And you another know. compromise we had was don't ever make anything too expensive because you don't want this to be a once a month location. Correct. You want people to come two to three times a week and not hurt their, 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 bottom, their bottom line, their budget. We make cocktails affordable, and food is great, affordable. It comes out of, it comes very fast. And it's easy to, the, the cocktails, you know, they're easy to understand. Um, the classics, I think that was your guidance. Just, you know, focus on the classics, Paloma, Margarita. Don't do any innovation. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly. Introduce the wheel. Just, Improve the, the the basics, and that's what we need. And it's still the the smoky margarita, the regular margarita, and the paloma are the best sellers. Made with fresh juice. People don't know how much effort goes into that. You have a guy that's juicing for two hours to make that margarita. Actually, now we have a guy that's juicing for five hours. 
how many limes you have yeah. to juice all day. Yeah, so um, people don't know what's behind the scene. Right. Uh, to make a right and to try to make a right. Uh, but it's a lot of effort, a lot of teamwork, a lot of uh, long hours, a lot of uh, people working very hard in the kitchen as well. Uh, with this industry and restaurant right now, the kitchen is the biggest problem as far as finding the right people. How do you maintain people in this industry? Like, how, how do you how do you retain your good people? Because I know one of the biggest things I hear in California is everybody's bouncing from job to job, always thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. Yes. Well, that's never the case. I think uh, being competitor on the market as a, as a concept, if they see that it, the concept is competitor or is one of the best, they're going to stay there because they, they want to be the pride. best. They have pride. And second, uh, looking at the owners or the managers getting very involved. If the owner is here, that this guy or this person cares about the restaurant. He's working just as hard as I exactly. am. Exactly. It's, it's not on vacation. Yeah. Like I, I'm making money because every, there's a lot of anger in this industry. Everybody thinks that the owner makes so much more money than employees or, you know, they forget about the risk. No, because I always said, you know, the first, the first thing that I want to pay uh, every two or every month or every two weeks is my, my team members my rents, everything else will come after. Right, and, that's um, amazing. I think with, with my team seeing me here on the stores every day, on the weekends, Cinco de Mayo, on Mother's Day, I'm here. They see, okay, I'm expecting a big day, I wanna support you, even though I, I, I feel that you're capable enough, but I know there is gaps. So let's be the best by covering you back all the time. And then when they see us in these magazines and articles or people like you, you know, talking about this concept, they see, you know, we're, we're part of the best team, you know, in LA. And then not only in LA, but even when I go to Oaxaca, a lot of people have recognition for Madre now. Like, oh, you're from Madre. I hear about this restaurant. And that made me really proud, but I also have more commitments and more compromise with my guests. Right. And, and also your culture. Yeah, my culture. You can't misrepresent them. Exactly. And then I think uh, after... Until now, I, I get some recognitions from the Oaxacan people, from the government. We are one of the ambassadors for uh, Vive Mezcal, which is a big project in Oaxaca. They call me, they visited me here from Oaxaca. Now I'm the, one of the two ambassadors for this project in LA. And um, all the media wants to be here, like, you know, different channels, That's talking amazing. about and the story. And I've seen a lot of, i seen, and i seen parts of your story as well. Like you give people a little bit of your story. I think this is. Uh, thank you for sharing all of this with yeah, us. No, no, know? my pleasure, and thank you for being here, and thank you for enjoying some stuff with me. I want to wrap it up because the idea of this video is to show people that want to get their first job in the industry or that are in their first job. What is the advice that you could give someone that's just starting? You know, either as a busboy, a bartender, and because it, it's a specific, it's a beast. You know, it's a different beast than a corporate job. So what advice that from, from what you see now you give people? Don't listen to negative uh, facts. Don't listen to people with bad experience. Always uh, follow your heart. That's a big, yeah. Um, follow good advice from good people. Uh, always uh, listen to people that have more experience than you. Um, just follow your heart, work as, a, work as you were the owner. And my boss always told me, if you want to be a boss, act like a boss. If you want to be a manager and you are not a manager, act like a manager, I want to see you there. If you want to be the best bar director and you're a bartender, act like the best bar director, even though you are not getting paid or you're not getting recognition, you're going to get there, you know? 
and then I worked as a restaurant owner for 50 years for someone else. You were acting. And you were, I was acting. <laughs> and now for me, it's easy. Yeah. It's easy. You're a really a, good actor. In, in a good way. You have two like, restaurants now. Yeah. And then um, if I want to open another one, yeah, it has the challenges, but I know how to do this because I've been doing this since I was 70 years old. But just act like the one that you want to be. And don't listen to other people, oh, you're working too much and you're only getting paid the minimum wage. This is the school. This is the school. You're getting paid to go to school. You're pay, getting paid for go to school. If you go to school to college, you are paying someone to go to college and you still don't have a job. And you don't have the money to, <laughs> to open your restaurant. Right. You will get people with money to open that restaurant. And you work for them. Unless you get great tips as a bartender, as a server, or great salary as a manager, start saving, getting all the experience. Boom, you get the combo, I like go that. for it. I like that. I, I, I heard that in New York. It says you act or pretend of who you want to be. The, the city is open. It's an open template. You decide who you want to be and you will become that. Correct. So uh, it's amazing to hear that again. Yeah. If you start looking for something and you really want something, after you get to one level, the universe will give you everything you keep searching i'm searching for another restaurant right now oh, that's good but news. i want to be a smart where i want to open it you heard it here, here first <laughs> <laughs> that's so amazing. i know the universe will give you that because i'm looking for you it but it i'm also happen. being uh, very disciplined in my business you know you gotta have this don't stretch yourself too thin right that's exactly. what you're referring to so just be disciplined uh don't don't go too too big without the right help okay. um have the right people behind you, but if you're gonna start working in a restaurant, just act like when you wanna be. If you wanna be the best general manager and you're a cashier, start getting take the all, responsibility. Take the responsibility, take the initiative. Yeah, even you if know? you're not getting paid for it, just go for it. I used to work off the clock several hours just to learn the inventory and all the maintenance and all the stuff. And look where look where it's yeah, out. Exactly. One last thing, if you could mention the two restaurants that you have, the address, that would be amazing and then Sure, uh, the first one is our baby, uh, Madre on National Boulevard, 10426 National Boulevard in Palms area. Uh, the second one, uh, which is gonna be two years now next month, or this month, uh, it's Madre in Torrance, 1261 Cabrillo Boulevard, Torrance, California, 90501, with the biggest mezcal selection in the States. Over 450, I think. 420 you know. now. 420, 420. Mes uh, uh, agaves. Agaves. Behind the back bar. We're going to shoot that after, so please, uh, you know, continue to watch the video. And again, thank you for taking this time. And I know right now it's lunch, and, you know, you took the time with us to, oh, no, it's a and, and to open up and, and, and tell us so many personal things. Like, thank you. That to me is huge. It's always good to share and see other people uh, growing in the business too. This will be amazing. I think it will help a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. Gracias. ¿Qué te pareciste? Ni lo, ni lo probaste. No. Bueno, con la, la, con la plática casi no. Está bien. Lo único que yo creo que cortamos es lo de workers' comp. Porque estamos muy angry. Porque yo también me vuelvo así con ciertas cosas. Entonces lo, lo tenemos más positivo. No, no. Es tu, es tu. Pero puta, es, es, qué historia, güey. Es tu show. Y eso es la mitad, güey. Es como para que digan, no se quejan, maricas. ¿Eh? Sí, no se quejan, güey. No, es, es la mitad, güey, porque si, si tú me empiezas a preguntar, hay más de mi vida, pero... No, no ¿cómo conseguiste tu social? 
a qué pasó después de la cárcel, o sea, la primera, yo no sabía qué había sido. Sí, bueno, no me pasó en la cárcel, güey, o sea, me... Te, te tomaron todas tus... Me tu... agarraron el DMV, el DMV tiene un cuarto para arrestados. Me, me llevó el detective así como un pinche este, este, el detective Capone. Uh -huh. Saca un viejito, me acuerdo. Nunca, nunca, nunca me voy a olvidar de esa cara, güey. Qué miedo tan verdad. O sea, yo estaba esperando en el. Tú eres el. Tú dices, el... ya me deportan. No, güey. Y me dijo la secretaria, ok, güey, for a minute, I'm gonna make a copy. Y viene este güey, te y, dice, y, y yo estaba de espaldas y, viene, y me toca. O sea, yo iba a Vázquez y digo, yes. Pues me arrestó ahí, solo. Me lleva al cuartito y ya, pues todo el pedo, ¿no? Yo le pagaba el güey y pues, me dijo que yo necesito la licencia. 